New Thinking Allowed, conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with parapsychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Our topic today is science and magic. My guest is an old friend, Serena Roney Dougal. She is one of the individuals who did her doctoral research in parapsychology, the University of Surrey in England. She is the author of Where Science and Magic Meet. She is also the author of The Fairy Faith, an Integration of Science and Spirit. Of course, this is an internet interview, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Serena. It's a pleasure to be with you after so long. And a real pleasure to be here, seeing your face in a nice little box. Yeah, we're going to talk about science and magic, and I suppose a good way to begin is by mentioning that you live in Glastonbury, England. Uh, you're a member of the town council there, and uh, to my understanding, Glastonbury is really a center of uh, esoteric culture in England and has been for a very long time. Oh, yes. Um, Glastonbury Tour is a national icon and has a very rich mythology and history um, stretching back through to the, well, probably even the pre-Celtic times. Um, and then it's got the Abbey, which is considered to be the earliest Christian monastic site in Britain. And in fact, I founded a group which protects and manages the oldest monastic Christian burial site in Britain with graves from 400 AD, 1,600 years ago. Um, so it's, 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 this land is awash with um, myth and history and legend. And my understanding is that the, the abbey there in Glastonbury is associated with the, the legend of the Holy Grail as well. Um, well, not so much the Abbey, but more Chalice Hill and Chalice Well, the Chalice being named after the Holy Grail. Um, and some people, the, the place that I've just mentioned, that I've founded the group to protect, that's also connected with the, the Grail legends. So the Abbey is not really a Grail place, but Glastonbury itself is. The legend being, if, if I recall, that uh, after the crucifixion, Joseph, uh, Joseph of Arimathea uh, brought the Grail with him to England. Well, the, the pictures and the legends depict him bringing two, two small cruets of silver, one containing the blood of the Christ and the other the sweat. So they're not actually the Grail. The Grail mystery is connected with King Arthur's vision, which was at um, Bridesmaid. Oh, okay. Well, that w might be a very interesting topic for for another 
interview, but really I'm interested in uh, talking about the the magical legacy of uh, Britain and, of, of course, many other countries, and uh, your approach to it as uh, a parapsychologist. Uh, it strikes me that when I think about magic and science, one of the first thoughts that I had is that practitioners of magic are potentially more scientific than the average person because they're so tuned into nature. They watch the changing of the seasons. They're aware of the cycles of the moon and the sun. I think it very much depends on what sort of magic you're talking about. So... In Britain, we can we can recognise various different streams and traditions of magic. So the oldest will be what you're talking about, the people who were connected in with nature um, and the cycles and the seasons, the knowledge of the stars, the knowledge of herbs, um, all of that aspect had a magical resonance to it particularly connecting with the spirit of the land. So we just mentioned Glastonbury, and Glastonbury Tor is said to be the home of a Welsh god called Gwyn Apneith, and he was the god of the underworld, a bit like Hades. In Welsh it's called Anun, and the entrance to Anun is Glastonbury Tor. So... Isle of Avalon, on which Glastonbury sits, was called the Isle of the Dead because Gwynabneath at um, Halloween, he would ride out on the wild hunt with his white dogs with red eyes and red ears to gather up the souls of the dead. And they would then go down, crossing the river of blood and the river of water. Once again, we've got the red and the white as with Joseph of Arimathea and the two Croats. Funny how myths and legends cross each other. And you go down across these rivers, down into Anun, which is the land of perpetual youth, which is where the deities live, where the fair folk, or what are called the tool with peg, the shining ones, and the dead all live in harmony forever in youth together. And when you refer to the fair folk, I, you're talking about what here in America we think of as uh, elves and gnomes and fairies. There's many strands again to the fair folk, just like there's many strands to magic. And we've just been talking about the the oldest strand, um, of which the fair folk are part. And there you've got everything from spirits of nature. So if you think of Hawaii and Mount Pele and the goddess spirit of, of the volcano, um, and then let's say you have Neptune, who is the god of the sea, but you also have goddesses of the sea. So, so those are spirits of nature, and you've got the earth, air, fire, and water spirits, um, which can be, let's say, dwarves with the earth and so on. But, but they're, one, they're the elemental aspect, which you can connect with when you are doing nature magic, when you're connecting with nature. You've also got another aspect, which one might call the piskies or the pixies, and these are ones that interact with humans, and they can be troublesome, as in poltergeist-type phenomena, 
or they can be very helpful, as in brownie-type phenomena, where if you put out the bread and the milk for them and you seat your house properly, then they'll make sure that everything runs well in the house and you don't have any problems, and the chickens lay eggs, and the cows give their milk, and you get a good harvest. So so they are, I think the modern form of them is the UFO. So, you know, they're half in this world and half not in this world. They're a strange sort of interplay. Then you get um, what the Torah Peg are called the Shining Ones, or in Ireland they're called the She. And these are of human stature, and in the Scottish and in the Irish, they intermarry with humans, and humans can have children from the the Shining Ones, from the She. And in fact, one of my family's forebears is connected with the MacLeods of Dunvegan and Skye, and they're the, 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 the laird, the, the, the head of the MacLeod clan. He married one of the she, and she gave, bore him a son, but then she, she couldn't stay with humans. She felt called back to her other world, leaving the child, and she put a fairy banner, uh, a cloth, over the child, and she said that if ever the MacLeods were in need, all they had to do was raise the banner, and and the, the the hidden forces of the she would come come to their aid, and according to legend that happened. But the legend also has a sad side where they misused the banner and the McLeod family got destroyed. So they're tricksy. One has to be really careful. And one aspect of them is the Selkies, the seal people. Again, this is a Scottish mythology where a seal is actually a fair folk in the skin of a seal, and again, if you hide that skin when they've come to land, then you can marry the the woman. Um, and then the fourth strand are the deities, like Gwynapni, who I've just mentioned, or Kerridwen, or Manan and MacLear, or any of these are the deity aspects. And these are the people who are connected with the stone circles, and the chambered barrows, and the cairns, and all of what I would call the Neolithic monuments, which I consider to be basically psychic science, that they were understanding nature to the extent that they could create places that facilitated psychic awareness. You might think of some of these places as uh, chambers of initiation. Yes. Most definitely. So certainly the, the, the chambered barrows. Um, if you read Evans Wentz's book, Fairy Faith in Celtic Countries, he actually talks about a chamber in Ireland that he interviewed old people. So this was back at the beginning of the 1900s. So these would have been people born early in the 1800s who remembered one particular place called St. Patrick's Purgatory that was still used for initiations, and you went into the chamber, and the chamber was blocked, you were in complete dark, for ten days. Can you imagine what that would do to you? Well, as I uh, recall from your book, uh, Where Science and Magic Meet, you spent some time yourself in one of these chambers. Uh, uh, More than one. I love them. 
Um, if I get a chance to spend the night in, in one, then I will do so. They um, facilitate what I call big dreams, dreams where you connect with a deity aspect or have a profound initiation within your own psyche. Um, I find them places of complete peace. I mean, the scientists have shown that, that all, all electromagnetic radiation is cut out, that, you know, radio waves don't get through and so on. Um, and so you go into those places and you can feel the tangible peace around you. And that enables you go in a very deep meditative state and you can have very profound experiences. I recall you describing such an experience. Uh, I think you said it was as if you were deep into outer space in between two different galaxies. Okay, I'll tell you that story. So this is in Ireland, and it's the hill that in the Irish is called Shlitna Keliach, which means the hill of the old woman. The Keliach is like Keridwen. She's the hag aspect of the goddess. And this particular hill has got lots of chambered cairns on it, one of which is complete. It's called Cairn T. And the whole getting to Cairn T was magical. My daughters and I were hitchhiking around Ireland, and we hadn't been able to get a lift, and we saw a church on the top of the hill, and we knew wherever there was a church there'd be a pub. So we walked up to the top and found that the church was derelict, but the pub was thriving, um, and went into the pub, and they gave us all a cup of tea and a biscuit. And I told them where we were going, because, of course, in Ireland, you chat with everybody. Um, and the lady said to me, she said, oh, when you get there, go to the farm and ask for Jenny, um, and she will give you the key. So we then actually got a lift from there with a farmer who dropped us off at the foot of the hill. And I went and knocked at the farm door, no reply. But I heard some voices, and just across the road was a bungalow, a couple of women standing at the door, and I, I went up, and one woman, she said, Oh, you'll be looking for the key, won't you? Before I'd even asked. So she gave me the key, and she said, Just drop it back through the letterbox when you're done. So me and the children started to walk up the hill and a couple of Americans came by in the car and gave the children and the, the, the rucksack a lift and I walked on after them. And up by where the car park was, there was another cottage and it's now coming towards sunset. So me and the girls knock at the door and say, excuse me, you know, do, do you have something that we could buy from you to give us some sort of supper? She said, come on in. And she gave us this laden scones and cakes and tea and when I tried to pay her she said oh no 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 if I knock, up, knock at your door you'd do the same for me wouldn't you so Irish so we go on up to the top of the hill and there's nine barrows there and we put up the tent and then we go to Canty and I've got the key and we open the gate and we go in, and the whole of the inside is full of carvings. I mean, every bit of stone is carved. It is utterly awesome. And they're said to be the oldest chambered cans in Europe, going back six and a half thousand years. 
And when we got into the end chamber and we looked up, my daughter said, my gosh, that's an, um, an astronomical zodiac. None, nothing like we've ever seen, but she just saw that this was a depiction of the stars from six and a half thousand years ago in the, you know, where the sun goes through the different signs. So, you know, it's very particular, those, those signs that the sun passes through. So we stayed there for a little while until the sun had set and beginning to get dark and, the, and my girls got a bit spooked. So we went out, I locked the gate and I settled them into the tent and did my best to put them to sleep. But I was too on edge and they were on edge and there was a wind that was whistling at the sides of the tent. So in the end I had to say, look, I've got to go. And I left them and went back into the chambered can and it's dark now and I went into that end chamber and I sit down and I meditate and the next thing I know as you said I find myself in a space that I can only describe as the space between the galaxies the depth of it the silence of it the nothingness of it and in that space, I, I heard or I knew, it felt like a voice saying to me, you can cross the threshold if you want. Now, my problem is, is I've been brought up with the Celtic mythology. And in the Celtic mythology, a night and a day in the other world is equal to a year and a day in this world. And I had two children in a tent. And I knew if I crossed that threshold that I wouldn't be around. I'd be gone. And I couldn't do it. Immediately. I'm a mother. Couldn't, I couldn't leave my kids alone. So, bam, I'm back in my body. Absolutely, like, I'm slammed back. And I'm back there in the chambered can. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, my gosh, that was just amazing. Oh, damn, why didn't I cross over? Oh, no, I couldn't cross over. You know, what, that one. And as I'm sitting there, the wall to my left suddenly glows bright orange. And my head just says, oh, car headlights. And it's dark again. And then a little while later, bright orange again. And my head goes, car headlights. And then it's dark again. And then it glows bright orange again. And I realize I'm down a very long passageway in a chamber that. 500 foot up above the nearest road. There's no way it's car headlights. There's no way that there's a light shining down that passage. There's no way that I am making a shadow on the brightly lit orange wall to my left. And you know Belisha beacons that, that flash orange for a crossing across the road. Well, we have them in Britain anyway. Um, and they're basically a warning. They're flashing off and on, off and on, saying, warning, warning. And I had a very strong impression that I'd been given the opportunity to cross over into the other world. I had rejected the opportunity, and I had to get out. They, I wasn't welcome anymore. So, mustering my dignity, I folded up my mat, and I walked out without looking back. I mean, that's a key thing, isn't it? When you come out of Hades or wherever, you don't look behind you, lest you get turned into a pillow of salt or whatever. 
So I walked out and I closed the gate and I looked up and now I could see the night sky. And the biggest shooting star I have ever seen very slowly shot in a complete arc across the sky. And it was like, ah, thank you. I've been blessed. What a wonderful story. And uh, now you refer to this as a barrows. It's a term I, I wasn't familiar with. Uh, could you explain a little bit more what a barrows is? Okay, so barrow is the singular and barrows are the, are the plural. And there's various different sorts of barrows. So the earliest are the Neolithic long barrows which I think were places where the dead would be put on the top for excarnation, so that the vultures would take the flesh away, leaving the white bones. And then the bones themselves would get put into the chambers in the barrow, because when the archaeologists have found bones, they've maybe been separated into piles of skulls or piles of crossbones or whatever. It, they've never had in the really old, the old Neolithic longbows, they've never had full skeletons complete. So those are the oldest, and you've got one at West Kennet, and you've got one at Stony Littleton, and they're nearly always associated with a major stone circle. Not always, but quite often. And it's like the major stone circle is for one sort of magic, and the longbows are for another, and they're nearly always aligned to a significant sunrise or moonrise, whether it's midwinter solstice, as in Ugrange, or whether it's the equinox, as in West Kennet. So there'll be a very significant sunrise that they are aligned to. What I was in was, is what's called a chambered can, and this is not long, it's more round. But it will still have chambers within it that, you know, at least three. Some of the long barrows will have to, up to seven chambers. Um, but the chambered cans have fewer. Three is, is quite a lot for a chambered can. Um, then you come through to what I would call the, the, um, the Bronze Age. So you've moved from Neolithic into Bronze Age. And there you've got masses of different tumuli, um, which are also barrows because they are tend to be graves of a particular wealthy person and you will find burials in them and various different grave objects will be found in them and so on. So that, that, that's just three different types of barrow. I'm under the impression that... Uh they serve a combination of purposes then, a sort of a burial site, but and we talked about them as initiation chambers and places uh, for ritual uh, celebration also, I would think. Particularly the ones that are aligned to the, the, the specific sunrises. Um, you know, these will most definitely be initiation and ritual places, whereas the, the Bronze Age tumuli were almost certainly just burial places. And some of them, it looks as if they were a sort of sweat lodge that they found, you know, in a sweat lodge you'll have the hot rocks and you put the water on the hot rocks to make the steam. 
But of course, some rocks are going to split if you've chosen the wrong sort of rock. And they found traces of burnt rock in some of them, as if they were some sort of sweat lodge ritual place. And now the stone circles are uh, related to them occasionally, you point out. I know uh, since I've been to Glastonbury, you're, you're not far from Stonehenge at all. Um, we are due west of Stonehenge. So we're on the Equinox Sunset Sunrise line. And these various, uh, I'll call them sacred sites or ritual sites, are uh, thought to be connected by uh, ley lines. Well, you could call that a very strong ley line if you want, yes, because it's, it's actually, when I say it's, it's due east-west, it's very slightly off. Um, it's very interesting. There's just a few degrees off the due east-west, which t- takes it to St. Michael's Day. And, of course, Glastonbury is connected with St. Michael, and St. Michael, of course, has has an ancient tradition of killing dragons. And dragons in the Chinese are part of the Feng Shui, and they're part of the currents of the earth, the Telluric earth energy lines. And Glastonbury is said to have masses of these energy lines, if you want to think of them, or spirit lines, as Paul Devereux has called them. Or maybe they're sighting lines, or maybe the ancient trackways. Uh, there's all sorts of different theories and understandings about what a ley line is. I know that I've walked quite a few, and it's like you get seven league boots. It's like the spirit just takes you on from one special site to the next, to the next, to the next, to the next. And it's a really magical experience to walk along them. Another thing that you write about is the the mineral composition of the stones that are used in the stone circles. Uh, There seems to be uh, a a particular interest in that. And and in some occasions, the ancient people, I think even Neolithic people, would carry those stones maybe 200 miles to be placed in, in the circles. Yes, so this is work that Paul Devereux did with his dragon project, talking of dragons as we were. Um, So he did that work in the 70s, and he worked particularly with the Rollwright stones, which are um, sort of on the Oxfordshire border, and what he found with them and with certain other places is that a lot of these sacred sites, the stones, are particularly strongly magnetic. That um, particularly with granite, you get the magnetic rocks being very strong. Um, and Glastonbury Tor, talking about Glastonbury as we were, um, the top of Glastonbury Tor is iron-rich sandstone. So being iron-rich sandstone, it has a very strong magnetic quality to it. And the theory there is, is that they chose the stones very specifically for their quality. Now, the ones you're talking about being moved 200 miles, these are the blue stones, which were quarried in the Pacelli Hills in Wales and taken via water and land, but probably mostly by water, through to Stonehenge, which is 
about a 200-mile journey, yes. And why they chose the Bluestones, we can't say for certain, but it probably is something to do with the quality of, of the rock. And these are enormous stones. The blue stones aren't enormous. The enormous ones are the sarsens. And the sarsens is a very hard sandstone, and that comes from an area between Stonehenge and Avery. And both Avery and Stonehenge are built using sarsen stones, although Stonehenge also has the Pacelli blue stones. And in fact, I've been to the valley where the sarsens were were taken from, and there's loads of them just lying around in the valley, and they are huge, because, of course, the ones that are planted in the ground, you don't see a large proportion of the stone because it's underground in order to keep them upright. But when you see them just lying out on the hillside, you realise exactly how enormous the stones are. And I understand where you live in, in England, there are maybe a couple hundred of these stone circle sites. I think Paul Deborah counted them once. More than 400 in Britain. More than 400. A lot of them down in Cornwall, a lot in Wales, a lot in the Lake District, Cumbria, and masses in Scotland. Not so many in the east of England. It's like there's a line across the, what I call the Celtic nations, the Cornish, the Welsh, the Scots, where you've got masses of the stone circles. And then on the east, the sort of the Saxon Norman areas, um, you have some, because that's where Stonehenge is, and that's where the royal rights are, but they're much fewer in number. It would seem to me pretty clear that the people who created these sites uh, for purposes of, of various rituals, for purposes of initiation, for purposes of honoring the dead, had had a strong sense of uh, the energies of the earth, the uh, crystalline nature of the rocks they were working with, the alignment of the planets. And now today, we spoke earlier about your passion, and you brought up that really, it, 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 although you've spent practically your whole career studying magic and studying parapsychology and uh, and the science. Your passion is ecology, which seems to me to be totally consistent with this ancient worldview. Yes, it is. So we were talking about the oldest of the magics, the nature magic. And this is where one becomes very attuned and integrated and interdependent with the natural world and one works with nature rather than feeling oneself to be separate from nature. So when I first started back in 19, well 1971 was when I started psychology um, and at the same time in 1973 I read a book called Limits to Growth. And Limits to Growth was a group of people who had forecast what is happening now. They had talked about climate change. They had talked about the degradation of the 
of the, the, the pollution and the soils and the earth and all from what we were doing, as well as other things. And But what I took on was that we needed to change our lifestyle, otherwise what's happening now was going to happen. So back then, in 72, they said if we hadn't changed our ways by the 90s, that it was too late. And I joined Greenpeace, and I joined Friends of the Earth, and I started to be vegetarian, and I started to eat organic foods, and all the rest of the changes that were required to live lightly on the earth. To, to live a sustainable lifestyle that the earth could support. And at the same time doing the parapsychology and moving to Glastonbury, which is where I essentially received my magical education in terms of understanding the stars, understanding the cycles and the seasons, working with what is called the Celtic lunar calendar, so that one completely tunes in, so that the whole of one's life, every step you take, every breath you take, is in accord with the natural system. And this, for me, is what real magic is about. It's not about doing arcane rituals, using fancy language, dressed up in funny robes. It's about becoming one with the spirit of the place that you are living in. That is a very profound lesson, Serena. I hope that our viewers will repeat what you just said and listen to it over and over again because you have encapsulated in very plain and simple language a very powerful and ancient message. But let me move on. And uh, you mentioned briefly the relationship, if I recall correctly, with the Shining Ones and uh, possible uh, UFO phenomenon that we uh, experience today. And uh, there is a sense that uh, these ancient uh, entities, uh, the the fair folk, as you call them, and, and the many varieties of them, are, are still playing an active role uh, in our uh, present reality. In my book, The Fairy Faith, uh, this is actually, I was picking up on work by C.G. Jung, and work by Jacques Vallée, in which they talk, and in fact somebody called Patrick Harper calls it the daemonic reality, as in D-A-E, daemonic. So we're not talking demonic, we're not talking about demons, we're talking about daemon, which is this aspect of reality that is both of this world and of the other world, connecting between the two. Now, in my book, The Fairy Faith, I actually have a whole chapter. I call them airy fairies. So, you know, we're, we're, we're out there in, into that world. If you look at depictions of the tumuli, which were places that the fair folk were said to inhabit, they are always um, circular, a mound. Think of a circular mound 
but the depictions will show them lifted up slightly with lots of light shining out, and you can see the dancing people and the feasting and the revels. Now, if you take a modern picture of a UFO, once again, you've got this domed structure that's circular with lights shining. Very similar. In the earlier times, people were connected with the earth, and they were living off the earth, they were tilling the soil, they were living off the fruits of the earth, and so they were connecting with that spirit. In our modern technological age, a lot of people are very divorced. They're living in cities, they're living away from nature, they're not connected to the earth, but they are connected to the fact that we've got satellites up, that we've sent rockets to the moon, we've got a whole space age happening. And so we are connecting with this demonic reality that is both of this world and of another world through experiencing space beings. It's a similar reality, but we have transposed it according to our modern technology and our modern interest, where our psyche is at. We've transposed it up into the, up into the skies. But you look at the shape of the beings that people have experienced and you look at classic depictions of Piskies with the big head and the spindly body and they're all very wicked with their big eyes. They're identical in, 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 in look. And then you think of some of the people who've had encounters with, with the denizens of the UFOs and they're talking about tall, space-suited people all in silver. And then you think of the Tulworth Peg, the shining ones of the Welsh and also of the Shi of Ireland and Scotland. Again, there'd be these tall, shining beings. Very, very, very similar. They're both the beings and either the craft or the home of the being. So I suspect that it's the same connections going on, but just different experiences according to where our psyches are at. We are living in a different world from the people who connected with the Tulwas Teg and the other fair folk. So we are having different experiences in accord with our civilization and culture. One of the uh, really most profound points that I found in reading your books is exactly this, that the mythology, you could call it uh, the fairy tales even, of, of a particular culture shape the actual experiences that people have when they encounter what we might call the other world. That uh, uh, this mythology is, uh, it may be pure fantasy on the one hand, but it shapes our psyche and uh, affects our actual experiences. Oh, most certainly. I mean, and more than affecting our actual experiences, it affects the way in which we live our lives. So when I was doing all my talks and classes and lectures and workshops, I would always say that your attitude is the most important action you can take. If you believe in fairies, then you will experience them. If you believe that you are naturally psychic, then you will have psychic experiences. If you believe that it's a whole load of woo-woo and rubbish, then you won't have any of these experiences. You just won't have them. And you might well influence others around you 
not to experience them either. So living in a place like Glastonbury, which is such a powerful site, and visitors, pilgrims, tourists coming here tend to have what we call the Glastonbury experience. Something profound will happen to them. They'll be really shaken by it because it's completely outside their culture and their belief system. Then maybe they'll go back to their city and they'll they'll say, oh, it was nothing. They'll forget about it. They will try to explain it away. Or maybe it will draw them to come back to places like Blasphemy and other sacred sites because something in them has been awakened that was dormant. And they will start to change their attitude, their belief system, so that they enlarge their experience of the world to include the dream world, the other world. Serena, can we talk about crop circles? They seem to be particularly uh, evident in Britain, uh, although I know they're they're found in other countries, uh, but to my knowledge, not nearly as much. And and I think some of of the most spectacular crop circles occur uh, right in the area where you live, around Stonehenge and Glastonbury. When crop circles first started, there was a great mystery around were they being made by UFO beings, were they part of this demonic reality, or were they being made by clever humans. And I would say that nowadays, so this is what, 30 years on, they're still being made, but very intricate patterns now, they're not just simple circles. They're beautiful artworks. I mean, amazing artworks. I would say the jury is still out, although most people now reckon that they are human-made by great artists. What I love about them is that if you go back to the late 1800s, early 1900s, most villagers, most people were country people and they would be in the fields at harvest time having a communal experience. Then from the 50s onwards it began to be initially two or three people in tractors and so on and then eventually just one great harvester over hundreds of square miles and the land was empty of people along with being empty of insects and flowers and all the rest of it. What the crop circles are doing is bringing people back into the fields at harvest time. I think that's really psychically, spiritually important. People are back in the fields, they're meditating, they're dancing, they're picnicking, they're playing in the crop circles. So whether or not, and I'm not going to come down on one side or the other, although at the moment most people reckon it's human-made. There are others where there have been strange experiences, so there might be a bit of both. And I'm just going to leave, leave that one as not proven either which way. But what I do love is that humans are once again celebrating in the cornfields at harvest time which was one of the four major cross-quarter-day celebration times at the beginning of August, which is when harvest happened. 
and it would have been the time when people would have been celebrating out in the fields in the day and it's starting to happen again and for me in terms of bringing people back into tune and into harmony with the cycles and the seasons is just wonderful and it's a wonderful way for it to happen well what I'd like to do uh, I'm going to link uh, in the upper right-hand corner of the screen, to a previous interview with uh, Colonel John Alexander, who was a, a researcher who uh, points out that, in his opinion, some of the really complex crop circles that were known to have been created virtually overnight couldn't have been done uh, by any of the normal human mechanical uh, ways uh, of doing it. Uh, so... Uh, that's his opinion, and uh, people who want to watch that video uh, can link to it d uh, directly. Uh, I think uh, you're expressing a certain amount of caution and drawing, rushing to a conclusion uh, about these things, but uh, it does seem to me from reading your books that these sacred locations, the stone circles and, and the barrows, uh, seem to attract a variety of phenomena like uh, lights, for example, mysterious lights, such as you yourself experienced. Yes, and I see that the stone circles were constructed for what I would call the out-there psychic or magic. They're places of putting influence out, the active psychic, as in healing somebody else or affecting something that is outside of you whereas I see the barrows and the chambered cans and those places where you go into the dark and into the silence they are places more for out-of-body type experiences for clairvoyance for what I would call the receptive psychic where you become aware of things within yourself rather than putting the energy out. So I think that they have very different functions. Serena, Roni Dougal, this has been a delightful conversation. I'm so happy to uh, reconnect with you. I hope uh, that we can do more. You are just such a wealth of knowledge. But on top of that, uh, your commitment to uh, living uh, in tune with nature, to uh, having a, a lifestyle which will provide uh, a sustainable world, hopefully, uh, is an inspiration. And I uh, hope that other people uh, appreciate that you walk your talk. Thank you very much indeed. I appreciate that. Serena, thank you so much for being with me. A real pleasure, Jeff. Thank you for talking with me. And for those of you watching, thank you for being with us.